So hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Politicking Podcast with me, Ben Hudson. And me, Stuart Thompson. So we've not recorded for a while due to Parliament being in recess, uh, but we're back now after the summer break and ready to go again. So did you get up to much over the Stuart, over the summer, Stuart? Stuart? Uh, yeah, well, we, we had some time away, which was lovely up in Scotland, uh, and we're very fortunate with the weather, so that was that was wonderful. And um, we also uh, had children who had various GCSE and A level results, so uh, you know stress levels were quite high for a few weeks at the end of uh, uh, of August. Uh, but our eld- well, they both did well, which is fantastic. So proud parents, um, and the eldest got the results he was after to come to the fantastic University of Liverpool in your uh, your neck of the woods, Ben. So uh, he'll he'll be up there very soon. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic to hear. And he's picked the right city to come to, Stuart, as well. So great news for him. Pass me congratulations on to him. I will. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So so we're four days into the new term, Stuart, and it all seems to be kicking off again already. So we've had the rack issues, um, Birmingham City Council going bankrupt, and we've already had a Labour reshuffle as well. So shall we start with the rack issues? Yeah, I think that's it's so critical to for the government, for voters, but for parents and the kids, obviously, more than anybody else as well. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's meant to be back to term this week and it's not gone that way for a lot of schools, has it? Um, I mean, I can just give a quick summary on this just for people who, who've been kind of living under a rock because it's been absolutely everywhere, hasn't it? So... So you may have seen in the media uh, this RAC issues popped up a lot lately. Um, so basically, RAC is short for reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, and this is the type of concrete that was used between the 1950s and 1990s uh, to build a number of public buildings, mostly schools and hospitals, by the sounds of it. But I saw recently, Stuart, I don't know if you've seen this as well. There's fears around some social homes having it as well. Um, so I think this issue seems to be expanding to a number of sectors. It's not just kind of schools and hospitals now. Um, so basically, I think RAC it, it isn't stable and is prone to collapse after a certain amount of years. Um, so I think where, where this issue originally kind of came from, the alarm was sounded in 2018 when the roof of a primary school collapsed. Thankfully, it was during a weekend, so no one got hurt, which is, is good news. But But since then, the government and the LGA have been engaging with councils and schools that were that were built from the 1950s to 90s to ask them to do building surveys to see if RAC was used and to come up with some mitigating actions to ensure the safety of children and staff at those schools. So I think guidance has been published in the past few years to help schools identify if they have RAC and what to do next if they do have it. So I think where this is where this issue suddenly popped up from is in August, I think a RAC panel failed at a school in England that would have been classed as non-critical in the guidance published by government, which has led to Education Secretary Gillian uh, Keegan taking action and closing all schools that have identified RAC, which has obviously caused a lot of chaos and backlash for the Conservatives. So I think there was around 150 schools identified with RAC, which have had to close um during the first week of term. So, yeah, that, that chaos, you know, it, it, it spread across quite a few areas. So I, I think what's made the problem even worse for the Conservatives is the National Audit Office told government in June that insufficient funding for maintenance of schools was making the risk more severe of, of collapse and stuff. So 
I think this is where they've really got a bit of criticism and I think it's the fact that they've kind of reacted so late and, and it's the first week of term and all that kind of stuff. So what's, what's been your take on this, Stuart? What, what have you kind of thought about this? Well, I think, it, first of all, I think this is the tip of the iceberg, which you've mentioned schools and hospitals, but there'll be a range of other public buildings. Again, in recent days, a number of theatres and uh, you know shows being cancelled because they're all looking and they, they all use this material as well. And look, you know, was it wrong to use the material in the first place? No, of course it wasn't. You know, especially in the fifties and sixties, it was a rush to get you know a lot of you know post-war, uh, a lot of buildings up. Uh, you know, governments have always looked at costs to try and manage the you know the you know how much is comes out of the public purse. But this stuff has a shelf life, so obviously they've been keeping a look on it. Uh, you know, a check, but the guidance has changed, given the um, you know given the incidents that, that you've mentioned, Ben. Um, the trouble for the government is is several fold. I think one is around actually that piece of about spending money on school maintenance. You know, one of the things that the coalition government did post twenty ten when they came into office after Labour was to stop the building schools for the future. Building schools for the future was, you know, rightly or wrongly, not without its faults. No government program is ever without its faults, but uh, it had a program where secondary schools would be renewed. In essence, a bit more complicated than that, but that was sort of it. Coalition government come in, go austerity, can't afford it, slashed it, put a new program in place, but for much lower numbers of schools. So this is a problem that effectively the government itself, okay, we've been through several different types of conservative government and coalition and different premises and all that, but it's the same government. So it's, you know, can be the, the fault can be, you know, laid at their door for not having dealt with this. But then secondly, you've got the communications of it. You know, trying to suggest that, well, it's so few schools don't really worry about it too much. That makes no difference and doesn't offer any reassurance to those kids and those parents and those communities whose schools are affected by this. And some of the schools that have to close or only have got small numbers of kids in or have had to put porter cabins up in there you know, uh, playing fields if, if they've still got them or, or whatever they, you know, if they've got space to put these up. Some of those were due to have got money from the building schools for the future. So effectively, you know, they should have been sorted out years ago, weren't, and now they're in this this place. But, you know, Gillian Keegan, as Education Secretary, sort of, you know, hot micing some swear words about, you know, what about me having done a great job type thing? And, and this then, you know, others were sitting around you know, who are those that were sitting around? Is she blaming ministers? Is she blaming the schools? Who is she? Who was she suggesting had done something wrong? I wasn't clear to me. Yeah. She's she's still not really clarified that, actually, because like oh. I'm still scratching my head on who, who she actually means about people who've been sat around. You know, it's that their government has been in power for the past thirteen years. So is she pointing the finger at previous PMs, or is it? A, a, Pointing a finger at Rishi, I, 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 I couldn't quite work out. Who I, I, don't, I don't think it could really. I don't think it really could be. And and look, and again, Rishi was Chancellor. So when the um, former, I think he was permanent secretary, so high level civil servant, uh, came on today programme a few days ago and sort of said, look, the Department of Education wanted this many schools, but the Treasury said, no, actually, you're only going to have this many schools, so 250 or whatever it was. Rishi was Chancellor. So again problem for the prime minister and the government is not only is there a you know a, a very firm line between its time in office but that it's coming down to this prime minister as chancellor as prime minister as well so a real line of accountability for this problem 
that's a that's a massive issue for the government um, at a time where people are also worried about you know the trains not running on time, uh, ticket offices closing, uh, you know consultation on ticket office closures, you know. I mean, a, a, you know, an issue that all local government, uh, you know, employees will be particularly familiar with, but massive potholes in the road, you know. So the idea of crumbling Britain is literally coming true, unfortunately, on kids' heads and at kids' schools. I, you know, Stuart, like, I feel like we've been asking this question for the past God knows how many months, but is this the final nail in the coffin for the Conservatives? Because it just feels like what else can actually go wrong for them and, to, and, to, and I, I actually don't think they're helping themselves a lot of the time as well with the communication that they're, they're putting out so as you said before like I seen something on Twitter that they shared most schools unaffected <laughs> which I know a lot of people had fun with I think the Labour Party put out something around there you know the beach is safe despite like for most swim goers despite the big shark and stuff in relation to a, a Jaws quote and stuff so I, I just think it, is this is this do you think this is the turning point for them do you think this is kind of the last last nail in the coffin for them or do you think there's still twists and turns to go as we've you know we've got a year left haven't we until the, the general election yeah no i think there are still twists and turns i mean i don't think you can you know a year out there's so many things that could still happen but it just reinforces that idea i you know reinforced or re- aerated reinforces the idea that you know, this is a government that's sort of run out of steam, that sort of can't be trusted with the public realm. That you know, so it, it rather than being a sort of a turning point, I think it's just a, a reinforcing of a general perception that it's sort of coming to an end. Now, does that stop Labour not winning an election? If I could put it in a sort of a negative way, no. Look, there's still a year to go. The economy may well pick up. Um, you know that he could solve small boats and suddenly you know it all looks a lot a lot different but I don't think anybody sees any signs of that yet um and a lot of this will come down to how long he's prepared to stick around before calling that general election so I know we've sort of talked about this in in previous pods but you know does he go early does he go does he hang on till the end all of these things also feed into the narrative the story that actually look this government is just in it for itself so i think that's a real yeah. problem for it as well I, I don't know if you watched the pmq stuart on wednesday but just you know just looking at the body language of a lot of uh you know ministers on the front bench and stuff they did look a little bit defeated i thought i mean i, I even seen a few clips on twitter going around of penny mordens um who's like a senior kind of minister as well and she was shaking her head when Rishi was kind of talking, which I don't know. It, it just it doesn't bode well for them, really, does it? You know, I think um, yeah. it's yeah, a it was yeah, there were decent, you know, decent amount of MPs on the back benches to sort of show their support, but they weren't particularly noisy. They weren't particularly engaged. So the whips will have been round. So the the party managers, in that sense, will have been round saying, "You will turn up, and you will." you know, make sure that you're there for PMQs to show your support for the Prime Minister. So the numbers were there, but there's a difference between the numbers being there and actually full-throated support uh, for this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I suppose it's also worth mentioning as well uh, the, that Christopher Pincher, so he's officially stepped down as well, hasn't he, which has triggered another by-election. Um 
I can't remember where. Is it Pontefract or something like that? Uh, I'm testing my memory here. Now, ben. I can't quite remember which constituency he is. He yeah, is. It, yeah, it, it's or Wakefield or something like that, isn't it? But um, yeah, so that's another. It, it feels like there's a bit of a, a drift of Conservative MPs dropping out as well as we run up to the next election. So, and that's another by election, which I think he's got a 20,000 majority 20, there, but, but it could be turned around as, as Labour have proven in other areas. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there have been a whole number of by-elections and there are more to come. It sort of shows that a lot of Conservative MPs have either been misbehaving or have got fed up with the project or you know wanted to show their support for Boris. And I can't remember what the numbers are. It's about nine or so, I think, even since Rishi came to power, which is now only a year ago. So that's quite a high number. That's quite a high turnover. So none of that is is you know particularly good. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, at a big majority for an opposition party to, to, to overturn. So you would think that, uh, you know, Pincher or sorry, the, the, the replacement for Pincher will be, um, you know, OK and will get in. Um, but, you know, it's a by-election. If the opposition parties pull together or do some sort of not, you know, deal, but if one campaigns a little less vigorously than another, I'm not sure they will, they, they will do that in, in this case. Um, um, but they could well then get the Tamworth seat. So it's Tamworth is uh, is the seat, um, and that would be another de- defeat for Rishi. Again, feeds into that general story and that perception of a government coming towards the end of its time in office. Yeah, so I suppose we'll keep an eye on that uh, as it progresses over the next. A few months and, and the rack issue as well because I imagine this won't be the end of it Stuart um, but moving on to I suppose more disarray for the country and Birmingham in, in particular so news broke this week that Birmingham City Council issued a section 114 notice to the government which means the council is effectively bankrupt and no new expenditure is permitted so I think that this has been caused, just reading into it a little bit, um, after the council was hit with a £1 billion equal pay bill after a, a 2012 Supreme Court ruling found hundreds of mostly female employees had not received the same bonuses offered to their male counterparts. So in terms of like what happens next for the council, I think they'll now have to prioritise core services, while other services across the city uh, lost, lost the funding they rely on. Also worth noting, government has so far refused to come to the council's rescue. I know they have in other cases and stuff, but um, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case with Birmingham. So I think this just kind of gives a bit of a wider picture, Stuart. That, you know, this this isn't the first council that's gone bankrupt, and and it probably won't be the last. In all honesty, but I think what is probably a little bit worrying for government, I'd say, is the size of Birmingham City Council. It's a huge council. It it represents a huge number of residents, huge number of services as well. Um, I, I suppose they really need to kind of consider what they're kind of funding. What you know, what what's the next steps in terms of making sure more councils don't go under? Because I think I think I see in some ways, Stuart, that um, there's another twenty six at risk of of going bankrupt in the next couple of years. I don't know, what, what's your thoughts on, on this situation, Stuart? We all know that local government's been under a lot of pressure 
financially for years. I mean, they've been at the sort of the forefront of having to cope with austerity. So, you know, services have not had the same level of financial support that they had, you know, years ago. One of the reasons why the government doesn't want to step in is, A, it obviously doesn't want to set a precedent that, don't worry, local authorities, you can spend money willy-nilly, it's fine, and we'll step in and solve it. Okay, on one level. On a much more political level, it's a Labour authority currently, but it's a Labour authority. Therefore, they're saying you can't trust Labour with your spending. Now, Labour will rightly say, or part of the reply from them is, well, actually, first of all, these issues are, as, you, as you've explained, Ben, sort of historic. These go back a long way. This was happening years ago, well before this particular Labour you know, uh, you know, leadership took over. And in the minds of the public, they'll go, well, it sort of proves that this austerity thing didn't really work because we all know that local authorities are strapped for cash because of this government's approach to spending. So if Labour can sort of say, no, it's part of the government, part of the cuts, part of the austerity, and the Conservatives are saying, no, 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 it's this profligate Labour party and you can't trust them, etc. That's where the battle really lies. Again, having coming up at the same time as a sort of the rack issue, back to that, you know, uh, you know, the rack issue, I think in terms of, you know, a lot of people, it will be general decline, cuts, this is where you end up. So again, another really difficult issue for the Labour for the Labour Party, but particularly for the government here. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, just to give a bit of a like background story to, I suppose, local government finances over the past ten ten or so years. I, I seen the LGA reported in twenty twenty that local authorities faced a reduction to core funding from government of nearly sixteen billion, and that's just since twenty ten. So that means that councils have lost 60p out of every pound that the government have provided to spend on local services. And they still expected them to kind of deliver at the same rate, which is obviously absolutely impossible. I suppose as well, like, this has been coupled with an increase in demand as well. So you've got, you know, areas like adult social care, children's social care, which are really, really expensive services to run in terms of like making sure, you know, children have the, the right support, um, adults have the right care and support packages and stuff like that. But all, all of that stuff is really increasing. And then that's coupled with kind of like the, the recent inflation that we've all been facing. That, that impacts councils as well for kind of some of the services that they procure and all that kind of stuff. And then I suppose a reduction in business rates as well with kind of high streets dying off and, and stuff and less shops being open there and, and things like that. It, it's For me, Stuart, I think it's all coming into a melting pot and I think it's causing the perfect storm for it. I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of councils over the next few years go bankrupt, to be honest. I, don't, I think this is the kind of sounding gun really on, on, the, on the start of many more to come. Yeah, no, great. I know. Ben, I think you've explained that really well because you're right. There's all these different pressures that have come on to local authorities, not just the cuts, but all the pressures that we feel as individuals and households, you know, councils feel uh, as well. Um, and I think it's difficult for the government to say, well, it's the Labour Party, because actually, you know, if that does start to become a bit of a cascade and others, and they've already talked of, of, of others and there's been some in the past as well that have gone bankrupt, this isn't this isn't a party political thing there you know and it's not a case of you know an authority you know being you know well run or badly run or something you know it's not it's not as simple as that there's a whole load of pressures again as you as you've rightly explained that the challenge is for the government is as soon as they start being non 
Labour authorities, like Conservative authorities or Lib Dems or Greens or anybody else, frankly, is how do you then say this is a fault of that council? It becomes less and less of an excuse because more will go. So in, in some ways, I mean, I know this is not what anybody wants to happen, let alone government, but let alone anybody for local services, you almost need a few different councils of different sizes of different political parties to all have the same problems about now. And it means that we can then have a proper conversation about delivery of local services. You know, what is that relationship between central and local government? The sorts of things that the Centre for Cities and other, you know, and, and the LGA, not least, and the new local government network of, of old and, and, you know, other organisations have, have talked about and have tried to, to get, you know, politicians to think about that's what we need so maybe the collapse of several councils would enable us to have a proper conversation about the relationship between central and local and that includes money as well 100 percent, 100 percent, and i think it's much needed because I, th- I think this is the thing Stuart. like councils have been managing just about over the past few years but i think as things like inflation just any tiny any tiny kind of other other financial pressure can push them over the edge and I think that's what you're kind of seeing with Birmingham to be honest and I think like I say I think that's what you're going to see with other councils as well um, as we approach the coming years so what well, I suppose one to keep another eye on Go oh, on. yeah sorry but look, apologies to cut across you there but I think the other thing which you'll see is is from government and we've seen this just you know, since the Birmingham collapse, you know, so the leader of Birmingham Council was allegedly on holiday in New York or wherever he was on some sort of family break, you know, as the council collapsed, you know, as if the family aren't allowed to have a holiday. And I don't know when, you know, how many kids he's got or how big the family was or however, however long, you know, the person had his uh, last holiday for. But you will see more stories like that. There will be a blame game here. And I would fully imagine, and this happens pretty regularly anyway, I would pretty much imagine that the government will go will also look through and criticize pay levels they'll say well the chief executive of the council is on and they pay some of their top executives da, 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 as if a that makes any difference frankly to the overall scheme of spending which you know whatever the money is it's it's never going to make a huge bit of difference really you know if a council goes bankrupt but this idea that you can only pay a certain amount in local government or in any part of the government, um, uh, yeah. So blame. We'll be we'll be we'll, and, we'll be in a blame game situation. And just on that point, Stuart, councils are already finding it really difficult to recruit staff to a lot of kind of the you know the higher exec levels and stuff like that. And if they can't utilize pay to kind of keep up with competition from the private sector, then you're going to have no one. You know, you're not going to be able to employ anyone. You're not going to attract the right types of talent as well to, to that area so I think you know if that that does happen I think it's another big mistake from government in all honesty because you're not getting the right people in for the for the job you know so um, yeah I don't know what I think one to to look you know keep keep an eye on really um but yeah I mean I mean worrying worrying times ahead I think for anyone related to local government I think Stuart, we'll take take a quick break there and then we'll come back and talk about uh, Labour's reshuffle as, as they've kind of approached the new term. Okay, so we're back and we're going to be talking about uh, Labour's reshuffle. Um, so a new new term means a fresh look to the Labour front bench and could signal the team Keir Starmer intends to have for his final push for government. 
So I think it's worth saying the changes have benefited MPs in the Labour Party on the Blairite wing at the expense of those seen as being more on the soft left side of, of the party, I'd say, Stuart. Um, so I suppose this is Keir preparing for his last push uh, for government and, and campaigning for government. What what will it mean in, in kind of the run-up, do you think? What, what do you think some of these changes do mean? I think it shows that Starmer is A, pretty ruthless, and B, preparing for government. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, in some senses, you know, the likes of Lisa and Ernie being reshuffled is sort of soft left losers, Blair right winners. But I think it's also more about, and arguably more about, those people with experience. So, yes, some of those people that have done quite well, the likes of Pat McFadden, who's you know, been around the Labour Party for a long, long time and, and was an advisor under the, you know, Blair governments, but also um, uh, Liz Kendall was a special advisor, so an advisor to ministers under Labour. So a lot of the people that have been, you know, and bringing back um, Hilary Benn as well, which I think is a, probably one of the best politicians, you know, we have in this country, frankly, um, very, you know, intelligent, uh, you know, understands issues as he showed through the uh, whole Brexit process, and particularly chairing the um, the Brexit committee in in Parliament as well. Really has a handle on issues and really understands these things. They're people with experience. They're people with knowledge. So yeah, their politics sort of fits what you know the public seems to want and what Starmer wants to do. But I think it's about being serious to be in government. So when this party, as Starmer would have it, when this party hits government, they can run straight away. That's what that, so that for me, that's what this reshuffle was was trying to do. Yeah, and and the scene as well. Uh, Sue Gray started as well, didn't she? This week, I think it was her first week in post. So it feels a bit like they've come back ready for that kind of last push with serious people in post and and ready to kind of go at it. Stuart, would would it be worth going through kind of some of the key appointments and just kind of exploring some of them? I'm, I'm thinking maybe we start with. The Angela Rayner um, appointment to Shadow Level Leveling Up Secretary. So I think she stayed as deputy leader, hasn't she, uh, for the time being? But she's also been now been made Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, which has replaced Lisa Nandy, who's now been demoted. Well, d- demoted in in uh, quotation marks to Shadow Minister for International Development. What I wanted to ask on this, Stuart, because I've seen. The Conservatives have tried prodding uh, at this relationship between Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer, saying that they don't get on and all that kind of stuff. It, is this a, is this a kind of attempt to strengthen that and show there is no there's no divide between the two, or is it just a case of promoting Angela to give her a bit more of it and acting kind of role as they go forward, pushing for government kind of thing? I think with all these things, there's never there's never one particular answer to that. I think it goes back to the the seeds of this reshuffle which were in the last reshuffle which was widely seen to be a complete disaster because Starmer at that stage didn't seem to be getting on with Rayner very well or vice versa and tried to demote her she you know quite rightly made a fuss stormed off you know uh, if you believe the papers then one often you know had a, had a few drinks that day and you know was turned her phone off and these sort of things quite rightly I think a lot of us would probably do the same uh, thing um, so look Starmer couldn't do that again. So again, you know, partly showing strength, absolutely doing the right thing. Now, I think it's for, for me a couple of things. One is just, to, I mean, for listeners to the podcast, getting used to some of these names. So we, you know, we bandied them around, but actually, in all probability, these will be people that may well be ministers soon and will have important jobs in government. So, listeners to the podcast, 
you know, we'll hear these names more and more over the coming months, and especially if the party gets into government. But that relationship between Starmer and and Rayner, look, you don't have to be friends in politics. You just have to recognise what roles you play. And, you know, Starmer is the, you know, the acceptable face of the Labour Party, if you like. And, and uh, you know, Rayner is the, you know, the acceptable voice of, of the left, you know, a bit sparky, isn't afraid to say how things are. Sometimes that gets her into trouble, etc. And look, we always look for, you know, examples in the past to sort of show what this is like. But it is quite like Tony Blair and, and John Prescott. You know, Prescott, you know, we never quite knew what he was going to say or how he was going to behave. But the unions and the, you know, uh, you know, were, were quite behind him. You know, a bit, bit more lefty, Blair, a bit smoother, da, 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 you know, North London lawyer, etc. You've got the same sort of thing here. Now, I think for Rayner, this is undoubtedly putting her into a proper job. So levelling up, uh, whatever that may become or be called under a Labour government, whether they'll keep the name, I'm not entirely sure. But there's a pressure that comes with that. Now, as Nandy, Lisa Nandy found, the previous holder, is that brings with it a level of scrutiny. Now, part of the reason why Nandy was allegedly let go was, you know, apparently sometimes she'd be brilliant and sometimes she wasn't quite so brilliant. Duh, duh, duh. Now, again, this is all briefings and counter-briefings, but for Rayner, she's got to deliver. So this is a proper job. This is proper policy. This is quite high profile. It's about... You know, that relationship between, again, as we touched on here, central and local government and spending and all these sorts of things, that's part of that brief. So a proper job. So actually comes with it a responsibility and a huge amount of pressure, that as well. Now, she could either flourish in that, but if she doesn't, then, of course, she may keep some of the other jobs. But if you know the party gets into government, she may lose that job. So that comes with pressure, I think. And, 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 and on Lisa Nandy, and I think, again, as you rightly sort of put in, you know, air quotes, demoted to international development, I think, yeah, some people will look at that and say, well, that's not quite as high profile. But actually, to the Labour Party and to a lot of members, you know, international development is a hugely important uh, job, not least because it shows the party's internationalism. And Labour has always been a sort of an internationalist party. It's always looked at international cooperation to solve problems, you know, in the post-war period and, you know, setting up the various, you know, global bodies, etc., right the way through, you know, maybe with some odd exceptions around the EU and Corbyn and, you know, into the, you know, Tony Benn era of uh, the early 80s. But generally, yeah, but even then, they were still an internationalist party. So I, I don't think it's quite the demotion. It may not be quite as high profile in terms of the public and in terms of the media goes, but it is really important in terms of the, the party and the membership. Stuart, the, the other one I wanted to have a look at was Chris Bryant as well. Um, he's been very vocal on standards, um, especially when kind of Boris Johnson was getting investigated around, you know, his, his shenanigans with COVID and, and all that kind of stuff. But he's been promoted to the front bench as well, which could potentially signal an area that Labour will want to prioritise, especially after we've had kind of years of... of you know, perhaps funny going-ons and, and standards being quite low when it comes to standards in public life. So do you think that might be an area that Labour are going to be wanting to target in their manifestos and stuff? I think they will. I think they'll put something in there, not least to show that they are not the Conservative Party. So I think they will put some tougher rules in. And, of course, as you've rightly already mentioned, 
you know, Sue Gray, who was the person, you know, former senior civil servant in, in government, uh, did led the investigation into Boris and Partygate, etc. Um, actually came out with a very balanced report, most people thought, apart from if you were a supporter of Boris, uh, has left government and is looking to help, um, you know, is working for the Labour Party, working with Keir Starmer to help them prepare for government. And, and, and that sort of real... Um, understanding of government is going to be hugely important and again as you mentioned then add that to Chris Bryant who's also you know a, a stickler you know for standards I think you know I think it is about standards I think that you know it does give them a voice I think also Chris Bryant is again a bit of an attack dog in the nicest possible way a little bit like um, Steve Reed who got uh, who got a bigger job in the in the reshuffle as uh, as well you know these are both people that will go out and absolutely you know, give it to the government and give it to, to Rishi Sunak. So I think there's partly as a, a sort of a, a communications point about that. I think what Bryant will find slightly challenging, and again, I'm not unique in sort of, you know, pointing this out, is because, of course, on the back benches, you can sort of say and do what you want to do. You, know, you can't be too outrageous, but, you, you know, there's the, you, you have a div- there's some flexibility there that you don't have if you're on the front bench. So... He's also got to sort of, you know, toe the line a little bit more than he would have done maybe as a backbench MP. I've, you know, I've no reason to suggest that he can't do that. He's, a, you know, I think he's another really good, you know, politician and, and um, you know, can get his head around a brief, you know, well, as far as uh, as I can see. But that will be a challenge for him personally. But I think to have some of those people that are really prepared to go out there and attack the government, again, I think it shows a sort of seriousness about this reshuffle and about the way that Starmer is leading the party. Yeah, and I suppose it leads um, us up to the, the kind of party conference season, and I suppose that, that'll kind of unveil a bit more about what they want to do and the priorities going forward and, and what they might include in the manifestos as we kind of have the run-up to the next election. So definitely one, one to keep an eye on, Stuart. I think that might be us for today, Stuart. I think we've got to the, the half-an-hour mark, so we'll leave it there for today. But Stuart, it's been great chatting to you again about all these kind of stuff. It's been a busy one today, um, and I'm sure the next one will be just as busy. It seems like, you know, the issues are kind of rolling in thick and fast. So, yeah, been great talking to you, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. Brilliant. No problem at all, Ben. Pleasure as ever. And thanks to all you for listening. Uh, we'll be back again. I think we're going to try and do a, a special, aren't we, Stuart, on, on kind of party conference season and potentially an even a live one. We'll, we'll see how that goes, Stuart, because you'll be up in Liverpool, won't you? We'll be up in Liverpool, won't you? Drum roll. I will be in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. 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 So uh, hopefully we'll do that for the next one. But yeah, see you guys again soon and um, keep listening. Thank, thanks for all your support. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.